0: I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors. Who are also working theater music directors.
1: Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy. And why you should check them
0: out. If you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi,
1: John. How are you today?
0: I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing all right. I'm,
1: uh... Back in the saddle as a dance accompanist here in North Carolina, so playing a lot of eight-bar phrases these days.
0: There's nothing wrong with that as long as it passes the time and the, you know, the paycheck comes through.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very, very
0: true. So what are we talking about today, John? Today we are talking about the musical that started it all for Rodgers and Hammerstein, Oklahoma with book and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II and music by Richard Rogers.
1: Oklahoma was based on the play Green Grow the Lilacs by Lynn Riggs, and it opened on March 31st of 1943 at the St. James Theater and closed on May 29th of 1948 after playing for
0: 2,212 performances. Oklahoma was directed by Ruben Mamoulian, choreographed by Agnes DeMille, with music direction by Jacob Schwarzdorf, orchestrations by Robert Russell Bennett. The original cast included Alfred Drake as Curly, Joan Roberts as Lori, Howard De Silva as Jud Fry, Celeste Holm as Ado Annie, Lee Dixon as Will Parker, Joseph Buloff as Ali Hakim, and Betty Gard as Aunt Eller. Oklahoma wasn't nominated
1: for any Tony Awards because the Tony Awards didn't exist in 1943. (laughs) But the recent 2019 revival was nominated for eight Tony Awards and won two, including Best Revival of a Musical and Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Allie Stroker
0: as Edo Annie. The show begins in the Oklahoma Territory in 1906. We meet the cowboy, Curly McLean, who comes to call on Lori Williams at her farm. He is greeted by Aunt Eller. It's the morning of the box social, a dance and fundraiser where men bid on the lunch boxes of ladies to raise money for a new schoolhouse.
1: Curly asks Lori to the social, saying he's going to pick her up in a Surrey with the fringe on top, but Lori refuses. Next, we meet the deranged farmhand Jud Fry, who is obsessed with Lori, and he also asks her to the social. Lori accepts Jud's invitation to spite Curly.
0: Will Parker returns to town from his trip to the up-to-date Kansas City. There, he won the $50 he needed, according to Ado Annie's father, to marry Ado Annie. Unfortunately, he spent it all on gifts for Ado and one for her father. A little wonder, a metal tube that you can look through to see pictures, but it also contains a hidden blade that will stab the viewer when a special button is pressed, something only Judd seems to know, and something he keeps to himself.
1: Ado confesses to Lori that while Will has been away, she's been spending a lot of time with the traveling peddler, Allie Hackham. Lori tells Ado that she'll have to choose one, but Ado says she loves them both. Meanwhile, Lori notices that Gertie Cummings is flirting with Curly. Lori tells the other girls that she really doesn't care about Curly, though.
0: In the next scene, Allie and Ado are caught together by Ado's father. At the barrel of a gun, Allie is forced to agree to marry Ado, something he's not remotely interested in. He sings a song to express his outrage, as one does. Meanwhile, Curly
1: is trying to convince Laurie to go to the social with him and not Judd. Laurie is afraid to tell Judd she won't go with him and protest the idea that she loves Curly. Hurt by this second refusal, Curly heads to the smokehouse where Judd lives.
0: Curly confronts Judd about Lori. Curly tells Judd that if he doesn't feel appreciated, he could just kill himself and then everyone would realize how much they cared about him and how much they'll miss him. Their confrontation grows and Judd's resolve to win Lori over only becomes stronger. After Curly leaves, Judd vows to make Lori his bride.
1: Confused by her feelings for Curly and afraid of Judd, Lori purchases a magic potion from Ali Hakim that he promises will reveal her true love. Under the influence of the magic potion, which is actually just laudanum, Lori enters a dream portrayed as a ballet where she sees a happy life for herself married to Curly. The vision is interrupted by the arrival of Judd who kills Curly and takes Lori away. As Lori awakes from her dream, she is suddenly face-to-face with Judd, there to take her to the box social.
0: Act two begins at the social. During a square dance, a brawl breaks out between the farmers and the cowmen, which is ended by Aunt Eller firing a gun into the air. Additionally, Lori is getting more and more upset as she watches Curly dance with Gertie. In an
1: effort to rid himself of his obligation to Ado Annie, Allie Hackham buys all of Will's souvenirs from Kansas City for $50. Judd also helps by
0: buying the little wonder and its concealed knife. With his newly acquired $50, Will bids on Ado's basket to show his love, forgetting that he needs the $50 to prove to Ado's father that he should be able to marry her. Desperate to be free of Ado Annie, Allie Heckam rushes in and bids fifty-one dollars. Will is finally able to claim Ado Annie as his bride.
1: The auction gets much more intense when Lori's basket comes up. Curly and Judd engage in a furious bidding war. Curly ends up selling his saddle, horse, and even his gun to raise enough money to outbid Judd. Eventually, Judd concedes and offers Curly a look at his new trinket, the Little Wonder. Aunt Eller foils Judd's evil plan by loudly
0: calling Curly to dance with her. Later that evening, Will and Ado Annie are together, working out their differences. Will tells Ado that with him, it's all or nothing. Though Ado doesn't love that thought, she agrees. Separately, Ali Hekim decides it's time for him to move on from this territory. Before he leaves, he tells Ado that Will is the man for her. Judd confronts Lori
1: and confesses his feelings for her. Lori tells him that the feelings are not mutual. Judd responds with threats of violence, and Lori fires him from her farm.
0: Terrified, Lori calls out for Curly, who comes running. Curly assures Lori that it will be okay and proposes to her. Lori accepts. Curly suddenly realizes that he's going to have to become a farmer and work on Lori's farm.
1: Three weeks pass and Lori and Curly are getting married. Everyone has come together again to celebrate the wedding and the impending statehood of Oklahoma.
0: Allie Hackam returns with Gertie, whom he has recently married after being threatened by her father with a shotgun. A drunken Judd also returns. He kisses Lori and punches Curly. The two begin to fight.
1: Judd pulls a knife on Curly, and as the
0: two fight, Judd falls on his own knife and dies. Aunt Eller organizes a makeshift trial for Curly out of the wedding guests. They declare that Curly is not guilty of murdering Judd. He acted, after all, in self-defense.
1: The show ends with Curly and Lori climbing into a surrey with the fringe on top and departing for their honeymoon. So Oklahoma is a show that probably everyone listening to this podcast is aware of, probably knows well, and is probably familiar with a, a lot of the songs. And we're, we're really not going to talk about the songs too much today. The songs are great. But, you know, like we always do, we're going to recommend a recording at the end. And if you don't know the songs, you should go and listen to them. But one of the things about Oklahoma that is really historically important and really interesting and was really well done is its integration of ballet into the drama of the musical. As musicals progress over time, and I'm not going to go into the whole big history of it, one of the goals is moving from sort of chopped up little scenes and vignettes into a fully integrated book musical, where every aspect of the show is working to tell one singular story. And one of the elements that musical theater really struggled to integrate was dance. It was hard to find a way to incorporate dance that was dramatic and intentional with the story. And this is really the musical that we can point to and say, that's where it happened. Agnes DeMille's choreography, is integral to the storytelling of Oklahoma. And it is specifically in the dream ballet at the end of act one, where that integration occurs.
0: I agree. And it didn't hurt that there was the pedigree of having Agnes DeMille there. Um, let's be really honest. Agnes DeMille as a choreographer in 20th century America she set the table. I mean, it was her work. It was, I mean, she did the choreography for Aaron Copeland's Rodeo. She did, she worked with the Ballet Russe. I mean, as much as anyone else, the idea of ballet as a storytelling device in America is because of her. And to have that integration into Oklahoma makes it an even more strong connection. In my opinion.
1: Absolutely. And it's a really great ballet in and of itself. It is not only beautifully choreographed with all these wonderful little gestures that I won't do now because podcast is an audio uh, form and you can't see me make the beautiful little shaker inspired gestures. Um, <laughs> But it, it, it really does clearly tell the story. One of the things about Oklahoma is that it was, you know, 1943, the costumes were sort of made out of whatever they could find. Yes, they were intentionally designed, but they were working with what whatever materials they could acquire cheaply and whatever materials weren't needed for the war. So the costumes are kind of, um, I don't want to say garish, but they're bold. Let's go with that. And the choreography, really clearly identifies all of these characters thanks to the costume and just shows you this beautiful story where there is Curly and there is Laurie and they're together and they're happy and they get married and then the dark figure of Judd appears and we see these posters of Can Can girls that he has in his smokehouse come to life and they dance this sort of weird dark sexual dance and then Judd and and uh, Curly get into a fight and they do actually fight in this ballet and Judd kills Curly and then he literally picks up the ballet version of Laurie and walks off with her and it's super intense and it is very clear exactly dramatically what is happening and the lesson that Lori is taking away she doesn't wake up and say oh I know now I need to be with Curly no she wakes up and she's face to face with Judd and Judd goes Lori it's time to go to the dance or something like that and that's the the end of act one and the curtain comes in and it's just this really intense dramatic moment
0: well, and it's, you know, a good indication of the ability of this dream ballet to integrate itself into the plot and the story of Oklahoma is ask yourself, if you took this dream ballet out, would the story still make sense? No. I mean, there's just, there's no way you can argue that, oh yeah, if we were to, you know, cut the dream ballet in half or, or remove it or just, you know, do a shorter version, it w- it becomes so integral to the storytelling process. That's its, Ultimately, that's its best part for me. And it sets the table for everything that comes after, whether it's something that Rodgers and Hammerstein duplicate um, in Carousel with the Dream Ballet in Act Two, um, or even, and, and I know this is a little bit more esoteric, but there's a dream ballet in West Side Story. Now, I know you're saying to yourself, wasn't well, the whole thing a ballet? Yes, I mean, there's a lot of dancing in West Side Story. I feel like we've covered that rather succinctly. But even there in Act 2, there is the dream ballet um, over uh, There's a Place for Us. All of that is possible because of Oklahoma. If we did not have this set up here with Agnes DeMille's choreography making it so integral to the plot, your this may be hyperbole, but the, the concept of dance as a storytelling device in Broadway musicals changes. This is this is the zero this is patient zero. this is the genesis of that moment and it sets the table for everything up until including today there's not a show that does not incorporate choreography as a storytelling device in modern musical theater and you can't change my mind on that
1: (laughs) i won't try and change your mind on that though i will say that not every contemporary musical has as brilliant choreography Oh yes. Yeah. Oklahoma did. Oh
0: no abs- and absolutely don't get me wrong Agnes De- the Agnes DeMille choreography for Oklahoma is mind-blowing it is far and away the gold pinnacle and I'm not trying to say that every you know there's no dance break in Something Rotten which is a fantastic show which we both enjoy and but there's no dance break in Something Rotten that in my mind compares artistically to what Agnes DeMille did in the Dream Ballet for Oklahoma. But what I'm saying is, is if we don't have that Dream Ballet, we don't have, it's a musical and it's choreography because the choreography in it's a musical in something rotten helps tell the story of the song of the plot.
1: You're absolutely right though now that you've said it I do really want to see the the dream ballet of Oklahoma danced by people in egg costumes because I think that crossover
0: would be <laughs> really really
1: good. <laughs> no okay so I I When I was in my undergrad, our school did a a production of Oklahoma, and I am hesitant to bring it up because I know it is uh, traumatically triggering to anyone who was near or around that production. I very fortunately dodged that bullet, though I did get to see it and hear plenty about it. (laughs) But as I just said, it is a super faithful reproduction of the 1943 production. So if you are curious to see Agnes De original choreography, You can go online, YouTube, Vimeo, find this UNCSA Oklahoma and just skip, you know, like an hour and 40 minutes into the first act video and you'll see the ballet and you can see that choreography. You can see it's the original costumes. It's the original orchestrations. It's all the original music. It is as close to 1943 as you can possibly be without a time machine. And it is very cool to see.
0: One of the things about this show is as popular as it was and as early as early produced as it was, as you mentioned, 1943, uh, we're at the tail end of World War Two. There have been approximately, oh, I don't know, three billion different productions of this show. That seems correct. Yes. It, yeah, it, it feels like that. So as we are all familiar with, especially with these older shows, as they're produced more and more often, You get a directorial staff, you get a production staff, you get producers who want to put their own spin, put their own ideas in the show. Oklahoma's no different, um, especially with some of the more modern mountings of this show and uh, the character of Judd. Thoughts? (laughs) Thank you for setting me up. I have very strong opinions
1: about this. Um, I think it is a trend in our contemporary society to try and to read into characters and to read into people and to find deep meaning and deep intensity and in discovering that deepness and the reality of that whole human and that whole character than trying to create a more realistic uh, performance this is 1943 in america we are in the middle of a war this is a show that was written to be a positive show and to make people feel good. And to accomplish that, the show needed a villain. And in Oklahoma, Judd is a villain. Judd is not a good person. Judd should have no redeeming qualities. Judd needs to be evil. He needs to be bad, and he needs to be creepy. And if you try and humanize Judd, the show doesn't work, because at the very end of the show, in the last five minutes, our hero is going to murder Judd. And that is not going to lead to a happy ending unless everyone in the audience is glad that Judd is dead. And I'm not here to condone murder, but Judd is a bad guy and Judd needs to go.
0: And if you try and humanize him, it doesn't work. Just to be clear, he was acquitted by Aunt Eller's court that had, you know, no legal basis or anything. But just to make it clear, he was in fact acquitted of murder.
1: I mean, self-defense, it's a territory. There's no real laws. It's 1908, like whatever, I get it. It doesn't matter. The point is, (laughs) if you are looking at Oklahoma and you're going, man, look at this deep character. He's feeling so many emotions and he's going through so many things. And oh, there's probably a lot of mental struggles there. Like that is a very 2021 or 2010 or any sort of contemporary commentary on a character. And you are completely missing the point. I'm not saying that those emotions couldn't be valid for someone, but that someone is not Judd from 1943, Rogers and Hammerstein,
0: Oklahoma. That person is evil. Part of me wonders and not, I don't wanna dive too deeply into this because we'll be here all night because I know we both have feelings about this. We see something like this in the opera world where instead of doing The Marriage of Figaro or The Barber of Seville for the 10,000th time, you'll have a directing team come in and they'll set it in in Vegas. Like there was a, a fairly famous uh, Marriage of Figaro that was set in, in Vegas or uh, Traviata. I, I think that one point the Met set La Traviata in World War II, New York. So what they did was they didn't actually change any of the material per se, but they put their own spin on it in a visual connotation. That's not really possible. With musical theater, at least I, in my opinion, it shouldn't be possible. Um, Oklahoma has to be in the early 20th century in the Oklahoma territory. You can't really set it anywhere else. And so I wonder if this desire, and, and I'll pick on this one specifically, the desire to humanize Judd is because that's something that, you know, directors can dig their teeth into. It's a mistake. You're right. Judd is a villain. Judd has to be a villain, but I'm wondering if that's where they're coming from. I mean,
1: it seems like a reasonable conclusion. I get as a director, you want to be able to bring something to a production that makes it your production, but um, don't this material is just so good that's why rogers and hammerstein or rogers and hammerstein like we know them as r and h because what they did was fucking amazing let the material do the work for you like just take the paycheck and make sure everybody stands in the light buddy
0: now to set you up to to let you tee off a little bit more on this I know we both have some fairly strong feelings about the recent 2019 revival. Yeah.
1: So um, this mistake that I've just spent several minutes uh, hounding on is exactly what the 2019 revival did. And I, I, I don't, I I didn't see it. So uh, I can't with, complete authority say that, but uh, I did find some reviews and articles about the revival and I'm gonna read a quote now from, uh, oh God, I think it was an an Atlantic article about this revival. Uh, Quote, this Judd is a much more sympathetic contender for Laurie's affections. End quote. No, that's not the point. Laurie gets with Curly, happy ending Judd. Bad, Judd dies, happy ending. If those two, it's just, it's it's not. (sighs) Stop trying to bring darkness into the world. The world is plenty shitty people. Like, just let us have happiness where we can find happiness. And this actually, the article continues to talk about the ending of the show. And it's like not a happy ending. There's this wedding where everyone's covered in blood because Judd was just murdered and they don't go off to their honeymoon all happy. Everyone's just sort of like terrified and scared. Like, okay, that's no longer Oklahoma. That's a different show.
0: Well, and the thing that bothers me the most about that, and again, sticking specifically with Oklahoma, is Curly has a character arc. Lori has a character arc. Ado Annie has a character arc because they're the protagonists of the show. Judd Fry does not have a character arc. Why? He's the villain. He's the bad guy. He's the one that has to be defeated in some way, shape, or form in the story. There, you know, no one cares. Well, okay. Normally, I would say up until... 15 years ago, nobody cared where Darth Vader came from. Darth Vader was the bad guy. And then that that whole change happened, and you're not even going to get me started on that one. You know, um, the bad guy sometimes is the bad guy because they're the bad guy. You know, that's just you how it's the bad guy. Right. And in this case, Judd Fry doesn't need to be sympathetic. He doesn't need we don't need to understand where he's coming from. He's the bad guy, you know thankfully in the most recent revival of carousel they you know they had the opportunity to do something very similar with the role of jigger um and they didn't because they were smart enough to realize he's a caricature of a sailor who entices billy into robbing the ship's captain and that's it that's his sole motivation there's no you know it's not because he was hit as a child it's not because he was poor growing up or this he was a bad guy with bad intentions that drew the protagonist into doing something they shouldn't have done you know that that's just how it comes down to it things like this don't need to be adjusted they don't need to be changed
1: and and to 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 one thing you just touched on there that search for deeper meaning you don't need to find it. Not everything has to be deep and intense. It's Oklahoma. Just enjoy it. Have a good time, people. We're allowed to have a good time. It's okay.
0: Now, to be fair, the twenty nineteen revival is not completely useless. No, there, it's just like ninety percent useless. Um, Ali Stroker's performance as Ato Annie is fantastic and she sings the hell out of can't say no like hands down take me to church it's an amazing performance and if you get an opportunity you can you know just listen to that track of the 2019 recording or I'll tell you right now if you go to the tube of views I am sure there's an excerpt on there of her singing it and it's brilliant
1: it is it genuinely is so i i I was i mean i knew the 2019 revival existed before sitting down to write this episode but i had not listened to it Uh, so in keeping with the theme of, of this particular production, they were trying to make it more modern. They'd slimmed everything down. They changed the orchestrations, which is a sin that I will not get into right this moment, because we're going to talk about Robert Russell Bennett coming up soon. And we'll talk about it then. Uh, but they changed the orchestrations. They slimmed everything down. They got rid of the large ensembles and, uh, I turned it on and I started listening and, uh, the sounds that entered my ears were offensive to me. I realized that I'd probably take this more personally than I should, but the quality of the singing of the gentleman playing Curly was horrendous to me. It just was insulting. And the show kind of begins with a lot of guys singing for a little while, and every guy that entered just sounded bad. It just wasn't something that I would want to voluntarily listen to. And then Ali Stroker came on, and as John said, sang the shit out of can't say no, uh, it it was really, really good. And uh, Rebecca Naomi Jones was the Laurie in that performance also sings very, very well. Curiously to my ears, just listening to it, it sounds completely out of place to the rest of the album. She She sounds like she should be in a traditional Oklahoma. Like it's very kind of almost classical singing. It's a very pure sound. It's a very lovely tone. And it just doesn't fit in with everything else that's happening. Not bad, just very, very different, probably because the production is a complete fucking mess. So
0: is there anything else you would like to add to this discussion about Oklahoma today, John?
1: I think the only other thing I would like to add to this discussion is that uh, if you go and listen to Oklahoma, which you really, really should, if you haven't, please, dear God,
0: don't listen to the 2019 revival with the exception of Alley Stroker's uh, Can't Say No. So- if you are going to go listen, there are, you have actually a couple of different options. There exists a recording that was released in uh, the early 20-teens by Decca, which is actually an amalgamation of the original cast singing most of the score. So Oklahoma didn't actually have an original Broadway cast album released because, one, it was World War II and things like that didn't really happen. And two, things like that really didn't happen in in the early 40s. Broadway cast albums weren't a huge thing. Now, thanks to Rodgers and Hammerstein, they did become a big thing with some of their later uh, shows. So you do have this DECA re-release of these. It was a collection of six 10-inch 78 LPs um, that have now been Co- uh, collected it into one recording, which is fantastic and features primarily pretty much the entire original cast. There is also a 1998 recording by the Royal National Theater, and I'm going to recommend it mostly because it has a very young and a very inexperienced, yet still very beautiful singing Hugh Jackman as Curly. Oh. I don't know
1: if we want to include this, but it's really cool to me that the reason there weren't cast albums is because these were these were like the popular songs. You know, these were the charting radio hits of the time. So they were all the reason we have these recordings is because they were all released as singles and then played and people would purchase the single and listen to the single. And they didn't need to create an album to publish the show. They could just here's our hit. Here's our hit. Here's our hit. And every freaking
0: song in the show is a hit. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to
1: reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter
0: at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License, by Jason Shaw on audionautix.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.